Welcome to another episode of the Game Dev Show. I'm Kaylee Hurst, and I am here as always with my co-host Luke Greenaway. Luke, Kaylee, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm extremely excited for today's episode. Ian Livingstone is in the house. Oh, God, we covered so much. Founding Games Workshop, IDOS, Tomb Raider, Lara Croft's assets, education in video games, computer science. Yeah, it was incredible. It was an incredible journey. 90 minutes of just video game talk with one of the industry's founders. Honestly, beyond even just video game talk, though, it was about games. I mean, it was about all... Because really... Ian Livingstone started from D&D. We need to get into it because it's a long episode, but it was a fun one. Uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear it. Yeah. Buckle up, kids. Buckle up. Strap in. There's an early highlight where Ian does an impression of his grammar school headmaster. I guess we get into it now, yeah? Let's go. For you growing up, tell us about growing up. Tell us about your education. I started life in a in a working class terraced house in Manchester. Only child. I went to a local primary school, did quite well there, and went to a, a grammar school in Altrincham, Altrincham Grammar School for Boys, and did okay, but learned to love games there. I became chess captain. I played Monopoly incessantly as a teenage boy and used to win quite a bit. <laughs> uh, in fact, it got to a point where um, I used to win all the time, I couldn't be bothered collecting the small rents on things like Open Road and Whitechapel. I said, "Oh, that's chicken feed." So, <laughs> name as Feed. So, throughout my school period, I was known. My nickname was Feed. Anyway, that was a the, the beginning of the love of games. And thereafter, when I went to college, I mean, I didn't go to a university. I was a bit of a nonconformist. Just didn't fit into the sausage factory production run that the headmaster required of me. He said, Livingstone, why don't you go and work in a garage or something? <laughs> I didn't go to university, but I did go to college and carried on playing games there and then discovered American War Games. Fortunately, there was a, a game zine published in, in Altrincham where I lived and I helped do the covers there and, and write some of the articles. And then I moved down to London in the early 70s and met up with two old school friends, Steve Jackson and John Peake. Um, and we all decided to live in the same flat. And we had pretty boring jobs, but our passion was, of course, games. And we used to play games, stay in and play board games. And, and used to think, well, wouldn't it be great if we could just turn this passion of ours into some sort of business or career? And that's really how Games Workshop came about. That's incredible. And I mean, could you opened your first store games? Was it Hammersmith? Is that correct? Yes, that was the very first retail store. That was in 1978. But we started the company at the beginning of 1975. We were playing these games. And we thought, how can we build a community? So let's create a newsletter, which we called Owl and Weasel. We sent it out to everybody we knew in, in games. And one of the recipients of, of Alan Weasel, even though we hadn't sent it to him directly, was Gary Gygax in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, who had just invented this game called Dungeons & Dragons. And he wrote to us and said, love your magazine. Here's this new game. What do you think? And we opened it up. Didn't look very much. You know, pretty average illustration on the box. Three largely unintelligible rule books inside the box. 
But that game opened up the imagination like no other game had done before, and I don't think any game ever will. This was the very first role-playing game whereby one person creates a labyrinth of rooms and passageways in a fantasy world and populates those rooms with monsters and treasure, and, and the other players take on the roles of heroes, wizards, fighters, clerics, and go on these conversations of the mind, exploring the dungeons, killing monsters, and finding treasure. And it was a, a milestone in gaming history. Uh, and Steve and I became immediately obsessed with the game, uh, John less so. I mean, John was actually a craftsman, and his real job was a civil engineer. But that's how, as an aside, how Games Workshop name came about. We started our very first products before we got into D&D were wooden games that Steve would do the admin. John would, his bedroom was converted into a workshop. Uh, he'd make backgammon boards and go boards and worry boards, and I'd go and sell them to hobby shops and gift shops. And his bedroom was a workshop, effectively covered in sawdust and, and wood chippings. And, and that's how the name Games Workshop came about. It was actually a games workshop. Anyway, we decided, Steve and I, that we wanted to move from these classic games into role-playing games immediately. And it wasn't long thereafter that John decided he wanted to leave our fledgling games company because he had no interest in role-playing games. So we started selling D&D mail order. We went to the States in 1976 to meet Gary Gygax and sign up other fledgling games companies. And we did that. We took actually three months touring the USA, finally got to Lake Geneva to attend Gen Con, signed up all these new studios, came back. But we had nowhere to live at that time because we'd left our flat, which was our original office. And that was funny in itself because we used to see people milling around on the street outside and we were on the third floor. They were holding a copy of Alan Weezer. We used to open the window and say, you're looking for Games Workshop, mate? (laughs) And and our landlord would get annoyed with all the parcels and people arriving. And, of course, we didn't have a phone in our apartment at that time. There's clearly way before mobile phones were around. And the phone would ring, which was a a public payphone on the ground floor. And our landlord would often answer it first. And he'd just hang up on people. (laughs) We <laughs> couldn't be bothered, you know, us um, using up his phone with telephone orders for Dungeon Dragons. Anyway, long story short, we came back from the States in 76 and we had no money and we had a lot of parcels arriving. We put all the existing stock in my girlfriend's apartment at, at the time and we had to make a choice to find somewhere to live or have somewhere to uh, operate out of. So we found a, a small office the size of a bread bin in Shepherd's Bush which became the new Games Workshop office. It was a tiny thing. In fact, if we ever had a customer, one of us had to leave and go outside while the customer came in. It was that small. And having no money, we were forced to live in Steve's van for nearly three months. We had this very small triangular life. We joined a local squash club so we could have a shave and a shower in the morning. (laughs) Uh, And so we got out of the van, into the squash club, got very good at squash by default. (laughs) Had a shave. Oh, my God, I love this. the office doing mail orders till about midnight back into the stinky old van and this went on for quite some time until we finally had enough cash to be able to afford rent for an apartment albeit a very run down one with a leaky roof so this sort of hand to mouth existence went on for quite a long time because in those days there was no games industry per se and so you go to the bank manager and say, hey we've got this great idea it's 
it's a game, it's a role-playing game, and you kill monsters, you find treasure. And the bank manager looks at you rather like a dog watching television, kind of nods his head and says, uh, no, I'm sorry, please leave now. But um, when, <laughs> when you're driven by a passion, it doesn't seem like a tough time. I guess you could say we were living the dream, inverted commas. Although that it sounds was, fun. It was pretty. It was funny, but also quite tough at the time. But you know, Yeah, but it was. I love the image of customer comes in, one of you guys has to leave. I like the um, thought of you being in a bank and you being dressed as a wizard and Steve as a barbarian <laughs> trying to convince the bank that D&D and about this, like, this world and why it's a great investment. The crazy thing is, obviously, you look at it now, like 30 years on and actually D&D, Games Workshop, board games, that well, entire, it's, it's influenced everything. Um, yeah. It's actually 45 years since we started Games Workshop. It was 1975. Wow. So, as you say, we, we did open our first retail store, largely because we couldn't get other stores, retailers, to stock D&D and White Dwarf magazine and other things we were now producing in a meaningful way. So we thought it would be best if we had our own flagship store. So we opened our first retail store in Hammersmith and Downing Road in April 78. And there was a huge queue outside. Is of, that that kind of iconic picture that I've seen yeah. of, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was wondering if that was day one or if that was, you know, some big That was event. day one, opening day, April 78. Yeah. And it was a pretty wow. grim, wet April day. And yet there was a, a big crowd outside, which was fantastic because we realized, yes, there are more people like us. There. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot more now. So many. We're going to talk about fighting fantasy in a second, but I just want to know, do you ever find it crazy looking at the moment? Like I played board games with my friends. We actually played D&D about a month ago, which is max. We haven't played for about five years. We had to do it all online and it was really surreal experience not doing it in person. But do you ever find it crazy that at the moment there is such, especially over the last, say, three years, such a resurgence of board games and people playing board games? I think there was a... Yeah, I'm I'm a massive board games player myself. I've got over a thousand board games wow. uh, at home, and been running the same games club for since the '80s. And I don't think the love of board games ever went away. It's just that the the retail shops disappeared as a lot of people transitioned to video games, and the board games were left high and dry. But along, ironically, it's kind of odd that the the internet has saved board games, the physical board games, because of three things in my mind. One, Kickstarter came along, which was brilliant because people had an idea for the game. They could effectively test market it, get some validation from people who would pledge money to buy that game. And you could pre-sell a game through Kickstarter and one person could serve a global audience through a pre-sale of their game. Whereas in the old days, you know, a person who created their own game would end up printing 5,000 copies of which 4,990 would end up in their garage because they had no outlet. So Kickstarter has been brilliant for board games. Plus, e-commerce has been brilliant for board games, being able to buy them once they're out there as well. And last but not least, all the specialist websites like BoardGameGeek and being able to find out if games are any good and how to play from Dice Tower and and countless other places of information that you can access on, on YouTube and the like. So I think that's helped drive this ecosystem. And of course, Essen Games Fair has gone on ever since time immemorial, where more and more new games are exhibited and released each year. 
So it's great to see a board game revival. I mean, I'm not surprised because we are, as human beings, playful by nature. And video games have not replaced board games. They're just additive to the experience of play. Yeah, I I think one thing I like about that is, and I, I planned on asking you about this later, but to me, the board game to video game transition is about emerging tech, what's new and what's shiny and exciting. And does that mean incremental increases in how many people are playing games or does it mean cannibalization of the old technology for playing games? I think there tends to be this attitude of fear of new tech or fear of what's coming next because it's going to take away from what we're doing now. But I think I like your attitude that people playing video games doesn't take away from board games. People playing VR, AR doesn't take away from console. Yes, it's all additive, especially in video games. A new platform tends to increase the size of the the market and the opportunity. So Facebook became a huge platform for video games. Then, of course, Apple with touchscreen technology and an easy-to-access app store and being able to swipe your finger across the phone enabled people who never thought themselves of games players being able to play games of all types, from casual to to hardcore games, and then along comes AR and VR and accessible platforms like Steam to download onto PCs. These are all adding to the market opportunity, whereas in something like music, new technology tends to replace, so it's kind of substitutional. So from the different formats have been substituting previous ways of getting existing music, whereas in video games, it continues to grow over time because new platforms offer new ways of playing and address new markets. It's uh, quite exciting. And at the same time, of course, video games and board games are both growing. So, you know, there's 3 billion people playing video games today. It's $180 billion revenues growing exponentially almost. Human beings have finally come to admit that play is actually okay. (laughs) It's a fun thing to do. Playing board games is a different experience of playing video games, of course. You know, I, I love board games because you're sitting around a table with like-minded people enjoying their company and stabbing him in the back and the, <laughs> you know, the, smiling, the smiling assassin approach to playing, which is great. And, of course, we enjoy playing games together. It's a shared experience. And video games now, they're multiplayer and online multiplayer or local multiplayer. I think the experience is, is enhanced by that sort of meta gaming experience of playing together i heard you say that when you play D, you're like a brute or a thug and then when you dungeon master you try to trick people to their death i think that plays into the smiling assassin image i have yes yeah <laughs> my first D character was he's getting a bit old now he's uh, called Anvar the barbarian and he's He's seen a lot of action in his time. <laughs> what alignment is he? I, is he the same I alignment? Know, I want to hear so much more. Yeah. <laughs> well, chaos are good, evil, of course. Well, I'll do <laughs> so he's basically an absolute lunatic. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Ian, I think my kids would disown me as a mom if I didn't talk to you about fighting fantasy. Great. My kids are seven and four and a half. Uh-huh. So they're, you know, a bit younger than kind of the start of the target demographic for the book. So I've been reading them aloud to the kids. So the other day, my daughter woke up. She didn't say good morning. She didn't ask for breakfast. She just came and handed me the book. The books are so much fun. I guess if listeners haven't read them, I think most 
of our listeners probably have, but they are a single player role playing book, sort of in a similar style to D and D. Yeah, I mean, we just read Assassins of Valencia. Is Valencia the right Alans- pronunciation? Valencia. And they're for young <laughs> I'll be honest, we've died a lot. Yeah. <laughs> we've died so many times. Yeah. But you know, the funny thing is every time we die, the kids are like, well, start again. And then when we finally managed to finish the book, they truly were dancing around the living room. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously very proud of Fighting Fancy. It really stemmed out of playing role-playing games for, for many years. I mean, we started playing D&D in 75, and our first Fighting Fancy game, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, came out in 1982. And that was almost uh, by chance. We used to run these things called Games Day Workshop and in 1979. An editor from Puffin by the name of Geraldine Cook came along to see what was going on because she'd heard about this Dungeon Dragons phenomenon. And she was taken aback at how enthusiastic and passionate people were playing D&D in the hall, we had you know several thousand people playing, playing games at, at Games Day, and she said to Steve and I, "Would we be interested in writing a book about this hobby?" And we said, "Well, rather than writing a book about the hobby, why can't we write a book that allows you to experience that hobby?" She said, "Fine, sounds great." So we had then <laughs> had to come up with something, and we thought, "Well, how can we distill a role playing experience into book format, uh, replacing the dungeon master effectively with with multiple choice?" But adding a, a layer of play into that rather than just being a you know a simple left or right choice. And that's how we started to think about fighting fantasy and how we we thought we'd break a book up into four hundred number paragraphs, branching narrative, but with a game system attached to it. Very simplistic, light role playing system with only three attributes, skill, stamina, and luck. And we submitted that synopsis and she loved it. Um, the other people at Penguin were not so impressed. Apparently, the managing director laughed so hard that his head hit the table when she was <laughs> explaining what a Final Fantasy game book might be. But nevertheless, she persevered, and we got the contract, and The Warlock came out in, in 1982. It came out with not much excitement because the sales staff there didn't really understand what a, a, an interactive book was, and there was no marketing, and so it just kind of didn't do much. But we promoting it through our own magazine, White Dwarf, and told people. And suddenly pockets of interest happened around the country in playgrounds. And the word of mouth got around, of course, nothing better. The variety of the day was people talking about stuff that got Fighting Fancy off to the races. And they were hugely successful. It took a bit of time at the beginning, and then they became enormously successful. And she came along and said, can you write two more? So Steve wrote Citadel of Chaos, I wrote Forest of Doom. And by the time Death Trap Dungeon came in 1984, they were selling you know, in the hundreds of thousands. Over time, sold over 20 million copies. The thing is about Fighting Fancy is that because it had the word Fighting Fancy game book, the establishment were concerned, as people in society often are, about the word game as being somehow a frivolous occupation rather than being serious and having rigor. So the Evangelical Alliance published an eight-page warning guide about the book saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. A housewife in deepest suburbia phoned her local radio station and said, having read one of our books, her child levitated. I saw the – I think you talked about that maybe in your TED Talk. Yeah, um, maybe, yes. 
Oh God! Everyone I... else is thinking, well, for one pound fifty, we can fly or have some of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously, it's a bargain. The local vicar threatened to chain himself to penguins' railings until they were banned. There was magazines uh, saying about the dangers of children being obsessed by these books. The parents sending in petitions to Penguin Books saying, you know, their the imaginations having too much activity by reading these books. And yet, over time, it was realized that they were actually great for children, great for reluctant readers, encouraged creative writing, uh, encouraged critical thinking as children tried to find the optimum way through the book. But the single most important thing is that they empowered children. It was an interactive experience. It wasn't a passive experience as in a normal book. It gave children agency. It was their adventure. They were making decisions, and it's as if they were there. And that was the most compelling thing about Finding Fancy. It gave children power through choice and consequence. They lived and died by their actions. And of course, as you quite rightly point out, my job was to lure them onto poison spikes. And I knew that they would enjoy that and we'd get up and try again. Yeah. When my kids and I read them, we are so immersed in the world. But it is interesting because the three of us are making the decisions together. Like we have these long debates about, I don't know, should we talk to the warlock? No, I don't want to talk to the warlock. I think we should just keep moving north. It's so much fun reading them with kids in addition to just letting kids read them themselves. And it stood this test of time, you know, the first yeah. came out in 1982. And whilst they don't sell anything like the numbers they did, they're still in print today with Scholastic. I think it's really cool. It's that, you know, when you're reading a book, it's the exhilaration of discovery. When you're reading Fighting Fantasy, that discovery, you're in control of it. It's weird how it mimics video games now. It's like the template of you're discovering this story, you're playing this story, but actually you can decide how you discover that story. Uh, You can decide those next steps. Voice is empowering. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself wondering as I've read them, I'm like immersed in the world and I'm wandering around a field trying to decide if I'm going to fight a goblin. But then I'm also wondering about like how you create these books. Is it different from when you create a game? How do you create the narrative? How do you think it through? How do you think through all these different paths that you can take? It's actually a nightmare job, to be honest. Uh, That's, I I couldn't imagine how someone had written this. So that's why, that's why I'm asking. Well, you start off like any book. You have a plot and an objective. Uh, so you have a start, you know, a middle, and an end. And so you have an overarching story arc and and then ways of getting there. So I have a, a sheet of paper with 400 numbers on it, which I then strike off as I allocate them to a decision point. And then also on my desk, I have a sheet of paper that is you know 20 foot long, effectively, where of which I draw flow chart so number one circle it two arrows splitting off to it allocate number 217 and 77 to that decision point and off starts the flow chart and keeping record at every number what actually happens there minus skill point find a key etc and so it splits off and then bringing people back to uh, essential pinch points to give them essential information that they have to have if they're going to be successful so you're writing multiple storylines at once and making sure that each choice has consequence because if, if there's no difference between going through door A or door B, people will get annoyed. So you've got to make sure that it really has meaning, the choice. And then you have to make sure 
you might find, oh, there's a door here, so for, I'll lock this door, therefore I need to find a key. Therefore I go back in the adventure to put the key in a box where they can find it beforehand to open the door later on. So there's a lot of back and toing as you go through that. Then you've got layers of complexity. Is it too easy, too hard? Uh, so you kind of have to play through it to get that effectively playtesting. And you've got to find out whether the economy is okay, is too much or too little gold in there uh, to be able to be successful. There's multiple layers of things that have to be checked. And I'm still doing it in basically the same way. I, in the early days, I'd write with a fountain pen, which I don't do anymore. I do it straight onto my, onto my laptop. But other than that, I do still draw the physical map. And you know, I've, I've got all the uh, original manuscripts and all the maps that were from the early days and, and the more recent ones like Assassins of Valencia that you mentioned. Is it still your greatest passion? I think it's, it's very dear to my heart. Writing a book is it's a very emotional thing. It's part of what you are in many ways. And I enjoy thinking about people going through the books and where they might succeed and where they might fail. And I used to, in the old days, enjoy watching people on public transport with what I call the five-fingered bookmark because everybody cheated. <laughs> in multiple places it's like oh just oh, they're just peeking around the corner obviously and, uh, <laughs> that used to make me laugh but yes it's it is it's, it's a very emotional thing writing a book and it's a great feeling and humbling in many ways that so many people have enjoyed them over time i think one thing i love about hearing your process is i love reading books and i love writing I think I like that you looked at writing a book and you said, well, I don't have to do it the same way everyone else has written a book. I'm going to figure out a new way of writing a book. And you made it something that fit your creativity and your passion. I think that's so cool. Yeah, it, it stemmed out of being a gamer and then, of course, a role player. There's definitely role-playing elements in Final Fantasy game books, no question about it. Playing games, you are in control, whereas other entertainment medium you're not in control. You're a passive recipient of whatever the director or songwriter or author gives to you in a traditional sense. And that is so satisfying when you are in control. Yeah. I guess that, I suppose that brings us quite nicely onto the evolution of that control. And in some ways, like from a player's perspective or a reader's perspective is video games. I'm, I really want to hear about your video games career. It started at IDOS, but would you be able to like walk us through your timeline i know it's like an extensive timeline but in like a just tell us the highlights of your timeline if you were going to recap it yeah the pivotal moment was idas but it happened way before then we used to stock video games in games workshop shops you know the old activision games and cartridges etc we weren't that great at managing the stock levels and decided to focus purely on D and ultimately on on warhammer and White Dwarf magazine and Citadel miniatures, but we had experience. And of course, I was a player. I had a Commodore PET originally, on which I played my games before getting an Amiga and uh, in television I had before the Amiga. So I was very much a games player. And in 1984, when I'd written Death Trap Dungeon, it was number one in the bestsellers charts. And two guys came knocking on my door at Games Workshop and said, uh, We just started a games studio will you write the first game for it and this company was called domark and we called the game eureka and i did the design for it we had it programmed in hungary for secrecy because they were offering a twenty-five thousand pound prize for the first person to solve the mystery of eureka 
which would ultimately give you a phone number, which if you dialed, you'd end up on a recording machine in a solicitor's office, and the first person to do that would win the 25 grand. And I did actually present the winner on television with that check. But that got wow. me interested in when I left Games Workshop in moving, jumping ship into video games. So instead of taking royalties on that game in 1984, I took equity in Domark. And when I sold out of Games Workshop in 1991, I joined Domark and invested in that company, went on their board. And then the three years later, we put four games companies together to create Nuco IDOS, which we floated on the London Stock Exchange in 95. I became executive chairman. And of course, people will remember how IDOS suddenly became to everybody's notice because we made another acquisition in 1996. We took out the only other company listed in the space, Center Gold. And with Center Gold came a developer in Derby called Core Design. Mm. And Design, of course, came Lara Croft Tomb Raider. And so in October uh, 96, we launched Tomb Raider, and nobody had any idea just how successful that franchise would become. But um, Lara Croft dominated for quite some time. And it, was a, it wasn't just the fact it had a female character. And it was a great game with great technology. It was one of the very first games with a 3D character in a 3D world. It had amazing technology and a camera that hadn't been used before to, to track her movements. So it had classic pillars of exploration, combat and puzzles. Kind of all the planets were, were aligned. And it was no surprise that it was a success but we had no idea just how big a success it would become. Yeah, it was incredibly successful. Do you know what's crazy? Now, something that sometimes, I don't know if it does get overlooked. I don't know if you get this question a lot, but do you consider it like because the lead of the game was a female, she was a heroine, and because the game blew up, especially at the moment, obviously, with the world is talking a lot about diversity, sexism within the video games industry, for Lara Croft to be such a huge, and if not probably the biggest, would you say the biggest female lead in a video game? Yeah, no question. It must be quite an incredible feeling to think, well, God, we did this way back then. This is 25 years ago. Do you think the industry's struggled to seize that momentum which Lara Croft started? I don't think so. I think the industry reflects the people who are in it, and the industry is now becoming much more diverse it's still relatively a young industry, and it was started off by young guys making games for young guys. <laughs> uh, you know, it's shoot something or kick something. You know, and the, games, <laughs> the games were pretty limited in their appeal. But as the market evolved, it was only natural that more people wanted to make games and more people wanted to play games. So that diversity came into creation as diversity grew in consumption and compared to the film industry we're not really beyond in certain timelines the, the black and white era so there's an awful long way to go and yeah i think the games industry has, has done pretty good you know it makes mistakes now and then but it is still a relatively young industry it does its best i think in the people in it to be a very responsible industry yeah i agree i just find it strange to think that yeah lara croft was so long ago and that i I look at, say, The Last of Us 2 now, and you look at Ellie, and I saw an article on a website. It claimed that Ellie and The Last of Us 2 showed that the video games industry still didn't quite grasp what a, a masculine female lead was about. And I thought, well, if that was true, then surely games with female leads wouldn't be as successful as they have been. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also involved in a, a company that's also had its first product with the female lead, um, a company called Flavorworks with a game called Erica. This is effectively a new genre, a sort of hybrid model between film and games. This is a game where you can actually interact with video footage. Uh, it was released first on, on Sony PlayStation quite recently. She's a very credible lead character, Erica. But going back to the Lara Croft days, you know, it was the 90s and, you know, some of her features were perhaps exaggerated looking back, but <laughs> far more realistic. I like yeah. that euphemism. Some of her features were exaggerated. <laughs> Core design used to try and justify the fact they had limited polygons to uh, <laughs> yeah. develop the main lead character with. That's fantastic. One thing I'm curious about is this power of play that you talk about and the need for creative thought in education, the need for encouraging creativity above knowledge at times. I'd be curious to hear more about that. Maybe even especially when I think about that, I'm thinking about not at the moment, but up until a few weeks ago, I was my kid's teacher. We weren't going into a traditional educational setting and I felt this pressure to okay, we've got to get all this knowledge. I am supposed to be teaching them plural versus singular nouns. And actually hearing you say, at times maybe teaching creative thought is a bit more important than the strict, as you said at the beginning, sausage factory of knowledge, it's something like that. I think that that's a very big question you just asked. I'll try and break it up into how I see the power of play, creativity, and learning in three separate bits, if I may. Talking about games, you know, they often get a bad press, but they're really important, not just economically, but socially and culturally too, and from a learning point of view. If you can park your prejudice against one or two titles that are 18 rated and children shouldn't be playing anyway, and think what's happening cognitively when you're playing a game. You cannot get through a game without problem solving. It's absolutely impossible. People learn intuitively. They're not told how to play. They learn through discovery and trial and error. Uh, they can fail in a safe environment, and they're encouraged to try again. Now, in school, an examination effectively demands a binary decision. If you get the question right, you're able. If you get it wrong, you're less able. And yet in a game, if you fail that game initially, you will have learned, and then you try again until you're right over time. And we all learn at different rates. But in a game, everyone can succeed. Everyone can win, ultimately, in their own time. So you're not punished for a random binary decision point as, a, as in an examination. Games also encourage creativity in multiple ways. So when a child's playing Minecraft, digital Lego, effectively, building these wonderful 3D architectural worlds and sharing them with their friends and learning about stuff in context. A child can take silica sand, apply the heat of a furnace, make glass, put it in their building. They won't forget that because it's effectively learning by doing. Whereas if someone in the schoolroom was saying, and this is how you make silica glass, you know, and the kids are asleep and not listening because they don't have that learning by doing. They're trying to listen, remember, regurgitate. And games also effectively a, a simulation. So when you play Railroad Tycoon or Roller Coaster Tycoon, you're building uh, 
rides. So you understand the physics of building the rides and then the economy when you price those rides and then the staffing levels that you apply. And if you do it right, the virtual customers will come along. And if you don't, you tweak the parameters until you get it running well, which is actually is effectively a management simulation. And if people still think that game's a nonsense, I say, well, when you're next flying to your distant destination, think about the pilot. Would you rather them learn to fly by reading a book or using simulation software, which is effectively a game but without the scoring? I mean, you're going to learn a lot more by doing and giving people, again, agency to solve the problems and have an understanding through their experience. So I think games do that more than anything else. There was a study done, uh, which was on Horizon, uh, BBC Two program a couple of years ago, and they had uh, old people come in who'd never played a game before into a lab, and they gave them an MRI scan, measured the cognitive activity of their brains, and and then sent them away with a tablet, iPad full of games, came back a month later, measured the activity again, and they realized that it was a lot more activity was going on because of all the problem solving they'd done playing these games and thought, well, so maybe it's better to get old people to take a tablet to play on rather than give them tablets to swallow for their longer life, perhaps. So there are games, I mind, are a natural learning medium and and if you can take principles of games-based learning and apply them to subjects in school i think you're going to have a better understanding but getting back to the creativity point in the uk i think creativity gives us an edge as a nation uh, look at our film our fashion our, our music our architecture our publishing and of course games advertising we're pretty good at it and if you put technology into the hands of a creative person a presto video games pop out but it seems to me that creativity has been taken out of the curriculum it no longer counts you know the arts do not count in the, in the e-back they're simply a nice to have and so the government's so focused on wanting to have league tables and they do that through the league table system in which you know the, the arts don't count in, in the e-back which, to my mind, is is crazy because creativity is something that can't be replaced by robots or artificial intelligence. So why would you want to strip that out of the curriculum? Because that gives us diverse thinking, self-expression, self-determination, you know, the very raw materials of the creative industries that we're so good at in this country. So for my mind, it's a wrong thing. So I wasn't saying creativity is more important than knowledge. I was saying know-how should be as important as knowledge skills should be as important as qualifications and vocational learning should be as important as academic learning because not everyone's going to become an academic so why move the curriculum towards an academic focused Mm. thing yeah i completely agree you're almost pigeonholing people into what they should be doing rather than letting them choose was it in 2011 you co-authored the Next Gen reports? Yeah, that we were asked by uh, Ed Vaser, the culture minister. I'd been whinging to him saying there wasn't enough engine software engineers of a high enough caliber for the games industry, let alone every other industry that also mm. required uh, software engineers and artists and animators. So he tasked us to write this review, which we did with the help of, of Nesta, who gave us two full-time researchers and did the bulk of the heavy lifting. 
And we looked really at schools and the way they were serving ICT, which was really a strange hybrid of office software, you know, boring kids to death with Word, PowerPoints, and Excel, using other people's software rather than giving the skills to create their own software. So we were teaching digital consumption rather than digital creativity, which was effectively teaching kids how to read but not how to write. Mm. So how do you get them out of the passenger seat of a digital into the driver's seat so they have the skills and the knowledge to be able to make goods and services? And to the point of equality, no matter how disadvantaged you are, if you learn how to code and or how or how, understand how code works, you can access a global market through the internet, bypassing the old traditional gatekeepers of capital because you don't need to build physical goods anymore and access and monetize this global market. So give them an entrepreneurial mindset, digital making skills, and perhaps they might become job makers rather than job seekers. And that is such a golden opportunity today. And especially in the post-COVID world, which is going to be much more around digital economy in a network society. We've already seen a huge shift towards digital commerce and digital creativity. We have to be able to skill up our kids to be able to take advantage of that. And I'm talking about the games industry. It's one of the few successes during the pandemic. You know, revenues are up globally yeah. by a lot. It's transitioned easily to remote working from home as developers are able to use cloud-based development systems. I mean, the video games industry ticks all the right boxes for the post-COVID digital economy. It's high-tech, high skills, exports-focused, regional. You don't need to be in London to start a game studio. Intellectual property creating, it's time is now. If the government was knew more people in the industry, more, more likely to talk to those people, and then if they're putting their arms around the people in public in photo opportunities, then perhaps... That might send a more positive message to parents and teachers and say, look, this, yeah. this is a real industry with real career opportunities. And guess what? It's also a great industry from an economic point of view. And the investment community might be more minded to invest in it because in the UK in particular, the industry is punched above its weight in content creation, but has been underserved by capital. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. I never even thought of it from that angle. But yeah, if you can put a face to the product, to the creation, it makes it a lot more tangible. And hopefully, yeah, like you said, that gives government the opportunity to actually be seen with these figureheads and people throughout the industry. Most people on the street, to name one games person, they probably couldn't. They wouldn't be able to tell you the name of a few games, but they wouldn't know one person behind them. It's so interesting, isn't it, that um, I love that term, like we're teaching digital consumption as opposed to digital creativity, yeah, um, whereas you're taught in many of the other lessons in the curriculum, actually the opposite. You're taught how to be creative, how to absorb something and then create something out of the information you've just absorbed. It is really interesting. Personally, it's especially at the moment, I'm talking to my son. My son's 14. He's just failed his computer science exam to take GCSE computer science for year 11 and the interesting thing is i've been talking to his deputy head because my son's obviously extremely disappointed it was a single exam and the hard thing is i've said what's the alternative surely and i've I've emphasized how technology is so prevalent now in basically so many roles and there was no option for ict and even though i think ict isn't 
as useful as computer science in that computer science teaches you creativity, teaches you how to code through Python and other languages. What is the alternative? And they said there wasn't one. They said ICT clashed with Spanish. So he had to take Spanish because it's a GCSE and ICT is a BTEC. And there was no other option to take computer science for the next two years. That's crazy. I mean, with NextGen, our two main recommendations have computer science on the curriculum as, as an essential discipline and to have yeah. account in the EBAC. Now, we finally got to Michael Grove, who was education secretary at the time, and helped convince him that this was the right thing to do. And to his credit, often said, <laughs> he did actually disapply the old ICT curriculum and, in, and install the computing curriculum. The problem is the curriculum itself was largely drawn up by academics and the creative bit of it was missing. And there's another case because they want a standardized metric through an examination that it kind of missed the point. All the stuff that we need in the workplace, the exciting stuff, projects, making mm. a game or building an app or do something in robotics counted for nothing as they're more concerned with the academic part of that curriculum. So again, this is a case where schools are so focused, not through the fault of the teachers, but through the fault of the curriculum, standardized metrics to assess kids that they're bored to death because they're all learning the same thing at the same pace with kind of learn and, and regurgitate. So they end up, you know, most kids love learning, hate school. They do all the fun stuff outside of school, whether it's on YouTube and their friends. Children are naturally curious. They do enjoy learning. It's just that we make learning very difficult for them at school because it doesn't speak to their collaborative, interactive way of doing stuff. Do you know with the curriculum, do you think this extends to the government's perception of video games as a whole? I look at countries like Canada, look at Montreal, and they have tax breaks and um, numerous benefits for video game developers. And over the last few years, you've seen more and more video game publishers and developers are now developing studios in Montreal. And everyone's looking at it as like an opportunity to obviously create their games at more cost effective. Do you think the UK government's doing enough to encourage video game developers and publishers to invest in the UK? It's certainly improved. I mean, I was one of the people who helped convince the government to introduce video games tax credit in the UK, and it has been in operation for some time now. So it's similar to the film's tax credit. What I think is missing is that the government does enough to say great things about the games industry because it's suspicious like society of the industry and, and the content therein. So you'll always see a minister usually wearing a hard hat in a photo opportunity, standing out some widget factory in Sunderland, which makes pipes because it looks good. Whereas you'll never see them inside uh, a studio, which is you know, 40 geeks, some of them looking like Visigoths, making content that's going to be much more compelling in terms of revenue than the mm. widget factory where they prefer to stand outside of. You know, companies like Playdemic up in Wilmslow, make a game called Golf Clash, 50 people, generates over $150 million a year. There's no other industry I know that where you have such a high contribution per employee than games industry, and yet it's never talked about in that. So, you know, once again, I would reiterate the point that games are absolutely crucial. They're a great British success story, crucial in the sense of you know, economic, social, and cultural contribution to society. Yeah, I agree. It's... 
I do find it odd. I think there's like a deep lying, even from an education on a young level where parents still look at things like video games on iPads. They don't look at them in the same way that you described them earlier in terms of exploration, discovery, problem solving. And that sentiment seems to carry through the curriculum again. Computer science is obviously, it's made great steps forwards, but it's still not considered as seriously as other lessons and classes on the curriculum. And then even up to the point where we still don't celebrate the video games industry quite the way we should and give it the credit it deserves in terms of revenue generation. It's kind of like a common theme throughout, I feel. Well, it feels a bit like games that kids may play get put in a binary of like, it's either an educational game made by a company that makes educational games and it's, you know, teaching them to read or teaching them math and it's not, you know, it's moderately fun, but the point isn't to be fun or it's a fun game for example, Minecraft, and they're not learning from it. And it really isn't that way at all. I loved it when you said kids love learning and hate school. We don't need to put it in this binary anymore. No, at all. And, you know, Minecraft, I mean, who wouldn't want to become an architect after playing Minecraft? Yeah. Who wouldn't want to start their own e-commerce site after selling turnips in uh, Animal Crossing? Yes, I think our games just help define us who we are as, as human beings. You know, when we arrive in this world, we interact as babies, we learn through play. Play is natural, and I think you're never mm-hmm. too young to start, and never too old to stop. It's just that some people think they are trivial and have no no real value, and I would say absolute opposite is true. Yeah, I completely agree. Hopefully, everyone else will soon. That's the uh, that's the true victory. I think it'd be quite good to also to talk about what you're what you're up to now. I'd love to kick off that conversation with the Livingston Academy while we're talking about education. Could you like tell us about the Livingston Academy, what it means and why you've created it? Well, um, it really stemmed out of NextGen. We convinced government to put computer science on the curriculum and out popped the computing curriculum in, in, in 2014. And yet there was no examples I could see of best practice. So someone said, oh, well, you better do it yourself then. And that was just like, a, I hate challenges because I can't say no to them. So uh, I thought I'd try and open my own school, and I quickly realized that I would be useless at running schools myself as I have no uh, expertise in that area other than my own thinking of how pedagogy and, and curriculum should be. So I set up the Livingstone Academy, uh, Livingstone Foundation, with a view to opening a school, and teamed up with Aspirations Academy and joined their board. And I'm delighted to say that the first Livingstone Academy we opened in Bournemouth next year. And hopefully we'll be putting into place all the things I've been talking about today as part of a curriculum. Now, this is not going to be children playing games all day, far from it. We'll be serving the curriculum, hopefully, in a more engaging way, learning by doing a lot of project-based work and collaboration and good exam results will be a byproduct of a happier and more engaged student but we will still be, of course, serving the national curriculum as you're obliged to do legally. So we will be finding out in the not-too-distant future if that resonates with the, uh, the students who go there. I like to think it would. There will be a lot of learning by doing. There will be know-how as well as knowledge, and there will be computing in the terms, in a creative sense. It's using computers as a tool to create rather than just seeing them as a, an end in themselves. And you know, to my mind, digital literacy is almost as important as literacy and numeracy. And computing, computer science, effectively, the new Latin is going to underpin 
the digital world in the same way Latin underpinned the analog world. So it's really important that children understand how code works. Not everyone's mm. going to be a software engineer, but they need to know how it works because it's going to define this century in an ever-accelerating way. So it's important that they are not just work-ready, that they're world-ready. Yeah, I completely I agree. Yeah, I do too. I think as a parent, I'm like, where do I sign up? Because I had the exact same thought a few years ago. I took like a just basic coding class because I sort of had this 2 a.m. thought that if I don't know, not that I'm going to be a developer, but if I don't know how this works, I'm going to miss half the conversations. Yeah, indeed. So hopefully that will be part of it. But the other things I'm doing around this space, I sit on the the board of the National Citizen Service, which is an amazing institution by Act of Parliament. It's a an organization that puts 100,000 children through an outward bound course and, and social good, social cohesion course every every year. It only costs 50 pounds to be part of that. And yet you, know, you have a month, month-long activity and, and brings people together in multiple ways. I mean, involved with quite a lot of educational charities as well. So, yeah, I'm very passionate about children's learning because it's just too much. I mean, it just seems to me crazy that, Children are not allowed to enjoy their learning. It should be a, an enjoyable experience. Why shouldn't it be? Do you know what's strange is listening to you talk about it, it echoes the sentiments that I think Kaylee and I, we've discussed this before and we've, we've talked about this and why it should be more enjoyable. It's crazy that normal people are doing more about it. The other crazy thing is, is it's not, it's taken, it's now that this is happening. You're having to do the change yourself, which I think is absolutely fantastic. But it's, who else is doing it? Are there other organizations? Are there other people pushing the same agenda? I'm sure there are. This this can't just be me. And there's usually a, a collective consciousness around these things. And yeah, I think, as I say, I don't blame teachers for the situation mm. they find themselves in. It's uh, They have pretty tight constraints of delivering a curriculum that is largely outdated and does not fit the, the 21st century. I was just going to ask you about Sumo Digital, um, Sumo, what you're doing at Sumo and how the Sumo, because you've been Sumo for nearly five years. It's a public company now. I'm I'm chairman of the board. So when I left Square Enix in 2013, I didn't want to leave the industry. I just had been bought by Square Enix and um, I don't see myself really as as a corporate person. I'm more of a creative person with ideas for for games and entertainment and strategies around that. And so I decided to get a little bit back to my roots. I started writing another fighting fancy game book and I started investing in in indie game studios. But I kind of at the same time missed the big game development scene. So when I was approached by Sumo to join their board, I said yes. And uh, they appointed me as chairman when the, not long after the company was floated a couple of years ago. So I see myself very much in, in raising the profile of Sumo, which is an amazing full-service company. It makes AAA games for all the major platform holders and, and publishers around the world. 800 people in studios from Sheffield to Nottingham to Newcastle to Brighton to Leamington to Leeds to Warrington to Pune in India and Vancouver. Amazing organization, but very much under the radar in terms of, of, of people knowing what Sumo does largely because of their uh, having to sign non-disclosure agreements. I'm not allowed to talk about the, the major projects that they're working on. So I think they're working on 18 projects at the moment, of which only three are, are announced. 
So it was a you know, great privilege to be asked to join the board and, and I'm just trying to help them um, get to the next stage, kind of leveraging my 45 years of knowledge within the industry. So that's pretty exciting. I sit on the board of uh, eight uh, indies as well. So wow. yeah, I'm never going to retire. You know, work and play is the same for me. <laughs> I love every minute of being in games. I'm 70 years old and having the time of my life. But I love the amount of innovation that comes out of indie studios. The creativity, I don't feel like they're tied as much to existing IPs. But they sit alongside them. So I just keep saying this is it's all additive to the opportunity. In the same way that YouTube didn't displace Hollywood. Sometimes you want to see a, a major blockbuster, big budget production, or sometimes you want to just watch you know, a TikTok video or something <laughs> on YouTube. You know, it's just the same ex- viewing experience. It's just different types of, of, of content. And the same with games. Some tiny companies have made amazing games in the indie space, but that in no way displaces the AAA games that are being made mm-hmm. by, by the major publishers and platform holders. You know, you don't do everything on one device. So, you know, I enjoy playing on console games and I enjoy playing you know, indie games as well. So it's not exclusion of, of, of something else. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. There is no exclusion. It is all games. Yeah, and as you say, indie games look at the world in a different way. You know, they start with a passion to make something that is dear to their hearts and they express it in various artistic ways and different ways of playing. And, you know, when I look at investing or helping companies, they always say, you know, what's important? I always say the three most important things about a game are gameplay, gameplay, gameplay. Technology and graphics play a supporting role, critical roles, but nevertheless supporting roles. You always buy a game for the fun it gives you in play, not how it looks particularly and not what kind of technology it has. It's all about the gameplay. I think you always hear data is king. And I just was writing something about live ops and rewrote that to fun is king. Because if you lose the fun, you've lost the game. Yeah. Um, Um, I do want to touch on in your current work, the work you're doing with special effect, which is, you know, for the listener, a UK based organization focused on accessibility in games. And so I really want to hear about your work with them what technology we have in place that aids accessibility and what's missing? Well, um, special effects are a remarkable charity. They, they give children with severe disabilities a quality of life they would not have experienced otherwise. And so they modify existing gaming technology or create their own technology to help children or effectively cut off from the real world from having a, 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 you know, a fun experience. So they, these modified devices allow children to engage with games and get the satisfaction of seeing an output from their input and so they're able to effectively connect to uh, the gameplay experience they've used eye tracking in games so children who are immobile able to play a game just simply with using their their eye gaze and others you know some with lacking limbs or the ability to move are able to use the devices that special effects have created to give them agency and what they do is amazing. So I only help in a small small way I can to bring visibility. And I talk about uh, special effects in the talks I give around Europe and the world about amazing the work they do. So people should look at the website and if they can get involved and help in some way, please do. Yeah. It's incredible to watch the videos of 
kids who have never been able to play a game before and the incredible joy they feel the first time that they're playing soccer, they're playing, you know, these games that have been completely inaccessible for them before. Oh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the people there have done stupendous work in, uh, in this area. And again, it's, it's an example where games can be a force for good. And yeah. you know, if it allows children who are disconnected to the world to connect, that's amazing. Absolutely. Connect yeah. and feel joy and play. I loved it when uh, Microsoft, was it last year, brought out their accessibility joypad, completely designed to help those with accessibility requirements. And I thought, you know what? We need to be more proactive as an industry, I think. Exactly. We should. This, yeah, 100%. I think it's everybody and no one should be excluded from that joy. Yeah. I don't think it's so weird. You want to almost get to the point where we don't talk about inclusion because it is just a standard requirement that everyone can play everything. I also wanted to talk to you about Hero, Hero Capital. Can you tell us about Hero? Like, because I looked at it, and I was looking at, it, I was just like, "Oh, this is cool," but I'd rather hear you explain it and talk to us about it as though we hadn't <laughs> hadn't looked at the site. Uh, yes, well, this is one of my latest ventures, but this is wearing a a business hat. Hero Capital is a VC fund which funds later stage businesses. So by that I mean companies when they're starting off, they get families and friends in to invest, and then they attract seed capital from angel investors, of which I've done quite a lot myself, to get to a certain stage. Whereas there's usually a a point where they can't expand because the, the banks won't lend any money because it's not doesn't fit their model and they're not generating enough cash from their products to go to the next stage. And that's where VC funds come in. And Hero was established by three founders, myself, Luke Alvarez and Cherry Freeman, all entrepreneurs with a love for the games industry and, and technology and, and digital to enable companies to grow and scale. So we typically invest what we call at later stage, where they're, they're generating revenues and they need capital investment to, to go to the next stage and hopefully grow their companies into, into major games companies over time. That's so cool. One thing I love about throughout this, got almost 90 minutes that we've been talking, I keep hearing a similar theme. Maybe it's your alignment is chaotic evil, but when you when you see something that isn't working, you're willing to say, this isn't working, I'm going to make my own thing, whether that's VC or education. Yes. I mean, I guess that's my chaotic evil stuff. I like to make change. Really, <laughs> I like uh, that. Lawful good by nature. <laughs> uh, chaotic evil to make things happen if I think change yeah. is required. Yeah. That's great. I, th- I think it's very true as well. I was like looking at the, the other questions I'd left and it's weird because in 45 years, I was going to say like how you've done work with the games industry or the board games industry, the model industry, D&D, but it's more like after 45 years of contributing to fun and progressive yes. behavior, how fun and creativity can actually teach us a lot more. If you look back on like those 45 years, what do you think your greatest achievement in that time would be? Well, I mean, there's several. I don't think, I mean, people say, what's your favorite game and what have you enjoyed doing the most? I mean, it's a bit like asking what's my favorite child, and i got four of them. <laughs> so, Do you yeah. have a favorite? <laughs> no. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Actually impossible to have a favorite child. Yeah. I mean, you have mm. moments where you like one more than the other, but um, oh, yeah. you, don't, you don't have a favorite. <laughs> so I think there's this kind of, you know, four areas I like to think as being milestones, pawns of a better word. So obviously starting Games Workshop, seeing the very first Fighting Fantasy book 
on a bookshelf in W.A. Smith, uh, a pivotal moment. And you know, it's an intellectual property that's still my own and Steve Jackson's. And you know, we're very proud of that in multiple ways. Being involved in the, in the video games industry has been incredible from, from the people in it. You know, I think they're just a, it's almost like a family. We share an awful lot of information and ideas. It's not as ruthlessly competitive as other industries I've been aware of and involved in in other ways. Um, and then using games as, as a learning tool, you know, I'm very passionate about that and get people to understand the value of, of games-based learning and the industry itself. It's hard to pick a favorite, but you know, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I mean, for me, you know, it sounds a bit corny, but you know, life has been a game. You know, I'm just a young <laughs> kid having fun. <laughs> I love that. Maybe you just rolled high. <laughs> Maybe that was it. Maybe that's. Uh, you know. Well, I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> I tell you, I, I didn't. I didn't roll high on stamina. If I was alive, <laughs> we made a lot of it up as we went along. We made a lot of mistakes in the early days, but there was, thank God, there was no competition. It's just that attitude of, do you know what, if you can't see something out there and you think it should be, then see if you can be proactive and change that. And I feel like you've done that your whole career for the good, for the better. It's been incredible speaking to you today. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And long may it continue. Yeah, this was truly fantastic, Ian. This was, I feel inspired, actually, is what I feel. I do. This has been great. That's very nice for you to say that. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for making the time to chat with us. My pleasure. All right, Luke. Another one in the books. That was a fun episode. Ian is such a fantastic storyteller. At times, I felt like I was just listening to him um, rather than figuring out what to keep talking to him about, but that was so fun. What, what, how did you find it? What was your favorite part? I loved Ian's genuine enthusiasm for life. Uh, yeah. I loved, do you know what? I, lo- I actually love talking about everything around games. Uh, I love talking about the Games Workshop founding. Um, I imagine Ian... In his first store, obviously, you know, only one person allowed in it at a time and things like this. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's crazy how far and how much he's done in the last 45 years. Uh, so I, I kind of just enjoyed that journey from like past, present and then where he's going. Um, yeah, fantastic. What about you? Honestly, I think it is that he's such a good storyteller because as he was talking, I, like, I really had these vivid images in my mind of this journey that he's been on. Like you were saying, when he's talking about only having one person at the store at a time and one person like has to leave, like I can picture that. I love that. I also, I genuinely love the fighting fantasy books so much. So that was really fun to talk to him about. I know. Um, It did crack me up when uh, he said to you that uh, the book you'd started on was extremely hard and you were like, oh God, yeah, we've died a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Hard lessons learned for my kids. Yeah, there is a price to success, um, and that's Uh, failure. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) honestly, that was a fun one. If you enjoyed it and you you think you might want to be a guest or you want to nominate someone to be a guest, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to ptw.com slash the game dev show or email us at game dev show at ptw.com. It's worth saying, too, that everything we said on this podcast, all the opinions and thoughts are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the companies we work for. I think that's it, Luke. I think we wrap it up. That's it. Anything else? No. Great episode. Loved it. All right. GG, dude. GG.
Game over.